was shot and killed in 2012 by a white man who shot into the car of African-American teenagers because they were playing loud music. McBrath ran on a platform of tighter gun control. Today is day five of the tropical rain train. Since last Tuesday, we've had more than 8.5 inches of rain at Reagan National Airport. Cloudy and humid with rain and storms still possible this afternoon. Showers and storms end tonight. Mostly cloudy and humid, lows 67 to 72. Currently, it's partly sunny and 81 degrees. Stay tuned for Shaywanana. I'm Muskia Muhammad. Thank you for listening to WPFW Washington. Source for Music Minute and Tea. Wednesdays from 2 to 3 on WPFW 89.3 or online at WPFW.org. Welcome to another remixed episode of the Shy Wanana Show. My name is Gora Madan. Let's get it. Today's show, we will be discussing recent raids conducted by Immigration and Customs Enforcement here in Washington, D.C., which resulted in the detention of numerous D.C. residents. We will be hearing from D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine, American Friends Service Committee Policy Advocacy Coordinator Katherine Johnson, and D.C. Ward 1 Council Member Brianne Nadeau about these raids and what it means for D.C. to be a sanctuary city. We will also be examining the growing calls across the country to abolish ICE. During the week of July 8th, there were reports of at least five raids conducted by ICE in Washington, D.C., including ICE activity in the Columbia Heights and Mount Pleasant neighborhoods, which have historically been home to many of the city's immigrant residents. In one case, at the Sarban Towers building on 16th Street, ICE agents allegedly entered the apartment complex looking for specific individuals and when they could not locate them, began detaining people indiscriminately, including passerbys on 16th Street. Other reported ICE raids occurred in the Brightwood, Capitol Hill, and Petworth neighborhoods. There have been concerning, credible reports indicating that D.C. police collaborated with ICE in at least one of these actions, which would violate the city's sanctuary policies. Over the week of July 8th, it is estimated that between 10 and 20 people were detained by ICE, raising fears and fueling questions about the city's sanctuary status. 
local activists and immigrant rights advocates have called on the mayor's office to publicly denounce these raids and reach out to the Fairfax ICE office and other ICE officials to insist on the release of all D.C. residents that were detained. There have also been calls for the Attorney General's office to launch formal investigations into reports of racial profiling and police collusion with ICE. Yesterday, I spoke with D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine about the recent raids in D.C. and efforts to support immigrant communities under attack. Thanks for taking the time to call in. As you are aware, two weeks ago, Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents made several raids here in D.C., resulting in the detention of numerous residents. Reports have stated that ICE made indiscriminate detentions in at least one raid at Sarbanes Towers in Columbia Heights. What is your reaction to these raids? Well, like uh, the uh, the overwhelming majority of D.C. residents and the people who were impacted and the families that were impacted, I'm horrified uh, at these raids. Uh, these raids cause tremendous anxiety, fear, uh, and it causes people who are overwhelmingly law-abiding to no longer, you know, frankly, participate uh, in the activities uh, that they go through every day in the District of Columbia. So I'm outraged. And I saw your office recently sent a letter to ICE asking for transparency regarding their enforcement actions in the district. At the same time, there have been reports that D.C. police and PD colluded with ICE in at least one of these raids. Would you support a formal investigation looking into racial profiling by ICE and potential collusion between MPD and ICE? Well, in my letter to ICE, I raised the specter of racial and ethnic profiling as I requested specific information from ICE. Let me tell you what we asked for. First, we want to know the names of the individuals who were taken by ICE. We want to know where they're taken. We want to know how it is their families and friends can contact them to ensure that, in fact, they're being taken care of and that they're safe. And we also want to know on what basis did they target the areas uh, for raid. And that's where the racial ethnic piece, um, you know, is really raised. As far right. as um, any alleged collusion on the part of the Metropolitan Police Department, I've got to tell you that I have not heard that uh, from, uh, from, from any source and, in fact, communicated directly to the police who advised uh, that they were not involved in the rapes. Well, if there was credible reports confirming that, perhaps that would give your office reason reason to look into that. Uh, if, if, I think if there are credible reports on that, then that's very uh, concerning uh, to me. And it is something that the Office of Attorney General uh, would, uh, would certainly uh, aggressively inquire about. And what steps do you believe the mayor can take to strengthen D.C.'s commitment to being a sanctuary city? Well, you know, I think that the District of Columbia voters have uh, been clear as to the kinds of actions that uh, they expect elected officials to take. Uh, number one, we've got to speak uh, firmly, you know, and loudly when uh, an, a bad act like the actions of two weeks ago occur. Second, we've got to be clear in regards to our support for citizens, residents, and yes, even undocumented uh, individuals. And to that point, uh, the mayor and the city council have approved of a legal fund up to, I think now, a million dollars be used in order to allow uh, people who live in the District of Columbia, regardless of their status, to have lawyers when they need lawyers the most. 
Um, so I think it, I think elected officials must continue to be vigilant uh, and be responsive uh, to our community. Your office has been involved in a number of legal challenges, including challenges to the recession of DACA, as well as the termination of temporary protected status for a number of immigrant groups. In the D.C. area, as we know, there are a significant number of TPS holders, including communities of Salvadorians, Hondurans, and Haitians. Can you talk about the efforts your office is involved in and the personal connection you have to this fight? Well, thank you very much for, uh, for asking that question. Uh, as you know, uh, I'm an immigrant. You know, my family uh, is from Haiti. I was born in Haiti. I immigrated here uh, when I was three and a half years old. You know, I know that my parents taught me every single day to treat everybody without regard from, um, as to where they're from with kindness, dignity, and respect. And I think that's what we're doing as an Office of Attorney General in regards to the suits that we brought against the Trump administration, suits that I believe are based on firm legal ground uh, and raise issues of breaches of the Constitution on the part of the Trump administration. That goes for the travel ban suits. That goes for the DACA lawsuits. And yes, it also goes for the TPS, temporary protective status, that relate to El Salvadorans, Hondurans, and Haitians. I want to bring your attention to a victory. Just yesterday, a federal court rejected the Trump administration's attempts to dismiss a temporary um, protective status suit in which our office filed a supportive brief, supportive of the plaintiff in that suit. We need to stand up and fight for our values. We need to stand up and fight for the Constitution, a Constitution that, as its intention, did not countenance discrimination on the basis of race or ethnic origin. What we have now is an administration focused on policies that divide people, yes, along race and ethnic origin. This must stop. In addition to your efforts on DACA and TPS, your office has also been involved in examining criminal justice reform with a specific focus on juveniles. What connections do you see between the larger systems of mass incarceration and mass deportation as they are unfolding now? Well, I think you're asking a powerful question, you know, and, um, you know, candidly, a question like that brings up a lot of emotion. And so I'm going to try to, uh, you know, to, to be clear on my thoughts. And I think the policies of mass incarceration have been proven to negatively impact in a, in a reprehensibly disparate way um, how black and brown people have been treated in the criminal justice system. Put another way, mass incarceration has resulted in a disproportionate separation of black and brown people from their families and putting them in jail. Uh, what is similar that is going on now with respect to immigration are policies, once again, that I believe have been conceived and certainly implemented on a basis that treats brown and black people differently than our white counterparts. That's why we brought lawsuits. That's why we think uh, any animus that's racial or biased against any but just because of where they were born uh, is unconstitutional and should be stopped immediately. I want to encourage anyone who is listening on your call, who is a D.C. resident, to go register to vote now. And if you're not a D.C. resident, you live in Maryland or Virginia, as many of your listeners do, go register and vote now. 
and go out and volunteer, get the vote out. We must win the House in the Senate in 2018, and we must turn Mr. Trump out of office in 2020, or else these race-based practices will continue. Across the country, as well as here in D.C., there have been growing calls for the abolition of ICE from advocates as well as some Democratic Party officials. These advocates say that ICE is a relatively new agency with a dangerous stated mandate to work towards the removal of 100% of all removable aliens. There's a belief that the cruel and retaliatory nature of ICE's tactics have made the agency beyond reform. What are your thoughts on these growing calls and this growing movement? You know, I've followed those uh, those calls uh, closely, and I certainly see the momentum in the movement. I'm watching it carefully, and my, my views are evolving. Where I am right now is that I think that, uh, like the old Haitian proverb uh, says, the fish rots from the head down. I think that's what's going on. I think we have a problem at the White House with President Trump and the problem uh, with his policies. I think that is corrupting. Uh, and causing a lot of agencies, including ICE, to act in ways that are contrary to their very mission. And so I think the problem at the top needs to be changed, and the policies uh, should be changed immediately thereafter. That's where my focus is. Before we go, has there been any musical artist or song that has provided you with inspiration or hope during uncertain times? You know, if you um, if you were to ride in my car... Uh, every day, or God forbid, if you were to spend time with me for more than an hour, you would hear uh, the great Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, on my devices all the time. And my favorite song is titled Immigrants, um, because I think in that song, he tells the story of America. And what has made America extraordinary is its immigrants. In short, we get the job done. Immigrants, we get the job done. It's a hard line when you're an import. Baby boy, it's hard times when you ain't sent for Racist feet the belly of the beast with they pitchforks. Rich chores done by the people that get ignored. Uh, ya se armó, ya se despertaron. It's a whole awakening. La alarma ya sonó hace rato. Los que quieren buscan, pero nos apodan como vagos. We're the same ones hustling on every level. Ten los datos. Walk a mile in our shoes. Abrochense los zapatos. I've been scoping y'all dudes. Y'all ain't been working like I do while y'all work ya. It hurts ya. You claim I'm stealing jobs though. Peter Piper claimed he picked them. He just underpaid Pablo. But there ain't a paper trail when you living in the shadows. We America's ghost riders. The credit's only borrowed. It's a matter of time before the checks all come. But immigrants, we get the job done. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. We get the job done. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. Immigrants, we get the job. Yeah. That was D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine. I appreciate him joining the show and look forward to his continued engagement as his thinking evolves on these issues. Last week, on July 16th, Following the raids in D.C., 
several area groups organized a public rally in Columbia Heights to denounce ICE's actions and stand in support and solidarity with the city's immigrant residents. One of the messages of that rally from Sanctuary DMV, a group with which I organize, was that we cannot afford to discriminate regarding who deserves dignity. We understand that criminalization is a tool that is used to justify detentions and deportations, and we stand with all people based on their humanity, regardless of their backgrounds. Now let's take a listen to some of that rally. We have to remember that ICE did not always exist. It came into being after 9-11, built to really target my community in particular, Muslim communities. And I'll tell you something, as someone who comes from a community that was 70% deported post 9-11, these policies are not actually about security. What they're about is destroying our people, uh, disenfranchising our folks, stripping our folks of their dignity, and telling us that we don't belong. You tell me, don't DC folks belong here? Yeah! The council said we were going to be a sanctuary city. From what I'm looking around, we ain't no sanctuary city, are we people? That was Daraksha Raja, co-director of Justice for Muslims Collective. Following the rally on July 16th, hundreds of protesters marched to 16th Street in front of Sarbin Towers, where ICE detained local residents. Across the country in the past month, as attacks on immigrants have intensified through family separations at the border and ongoing raids in communities, there has been growing momentum behind calls to abolish the ICE agency. A couple days ago, I sat down with Katherine Johnson, Policy Advocacy Coordinator at American Friends Service Committee and an organizer with Sanctuary DMV, to discuss this growing movement. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me and for covering this issue. So you're a resident of the Columbia Heights neighborhood where multiple ICE raids took place a couple weeks ago. In response to those raids, Sanctuary DMV organized a community rally that brought out over 600 people. Why do you think it was important for D.C. to show up in support of immigrant communities? Well, I personally, as a resident of D.C. and as somebody who works on immigrant um, immigration issues, was outraged and shocked that my, that my neighborhood was targeted in this way. I mean, we've seen these raids across the country, and they're always horrific. They always tear apart families. But to see it really just down the street from where I live brought it home in a really visceral way. And I think it did for many other people, too. And I think that's why we saw such energy and such a huge turnout in Columbia Heights. And that kind of mobilization is really important for several reasons. One, it brings people together. It makes people actually feel like they're a part of a movement in a way that online action, for example, doesn't. And I think it was really powerful for people to not just have a press conference and a rally, but to take the streets in the way that we did. I think that really helped people understand their power in numbers and the power that they have here in this city. But also, I really hope that it helped demonstrate to our immigrant neighbors that we're standing with them. I think that when we went actually to the point in front of the apartment building where we believe at least nine people were picked up, I really hope that that helps show the people who live there and at Sacred Heart Church directly across the street, which has a huge proportion of immigrants in their, in their congregation, that we're there with them. But then I also think it's been important the follow-up work the, that Sanctuary DMV and so many other organizations here in D.C. have done, trying to help connect people to attorneys, trying to you know reach out to the families and see what other kinds of support they need. Because so often when people are taken, they're breadwinners, their parents, they're crucial supports for their families. 
but also, of course, what we do next is even more important. And so thinking about what we do next, what do you think city officials should do in response to the ICE raids that took place? Well, at the very least, really bare minimum, we should see public statements. I haven't seen anything from Mayor Bowser at all yet, um, and she certainly didn't didn't make any public statements last time when we saw very public raids specifically targeting D.C. and, and other sanctuary cities and in Operation Safe City. And so I'm really disappointed in her, certainly, especially as we've seen other cities and the mayors of other cities, many of them supposedly less progressive than this 95% Democrat city that we live in, really make strong statements when there's been attacks on their cities. So certainly, again, bare minimum public statement. But also, there's a lot that Bowser could do in reaching out to ICE. We've seen Immigration and Customs Enforcement be very unresponsive to public pressure in general. And of course, that, that varies a little bit across the different ICE offices. But in general, they're getting less and less susceptible under this administration to public pressure, which is why we need officials to reach out directly and demand things that like those taken from Washington, D.C. be released from detention. I mean, we're talking about a detention system that's known for gross abuses, that we've seen over 1,200 accusations, for example, of sexual and other kinds of abuse in ICE, something that ICE is aggressively trying to cover up, by the way. Um, ICE detention facilities have been cited for a medical neglect. Saw 12 deaths in ICE custody last year. And so having our mayor and our city council officials speak out to get these people out of these detention centers that are potentially deadly is crucial. But also, we need to stop raids like this in the future. And unfortunately, cities don't have the power to directly keep ICE out. But they can certainly make sure that there are consequences for ICE when this happens in our city. There have been reports from these last set of raids that Metropolitan Police Department may have colluded with ICE in at least one of the raids. There's also been reports that ICE was employing racial profiling tactics when they made arrests. What are your thoughts about these reports? We've seen ICE uh, engage in practices of racial profiling across the country. That's often really their MO. And so it would not surprise me at all. This is a, a fundamental tactic that they use that we've seen in other places. For example, when the men were picked up in front of the Arlington homeless shelter beginning of last year, it was very clear from reports there that they literally just targeted everybody who looked like they were um, Latino or Hispanic, basically. And this is, again, across the country. They, they just target people who are non-white, essentially. And so really, I, I certainly hope that the attorney general in D.C., We'll, we'll look into those those accusations and that there are consequences if that's true. As far as police collusion, I think this is something that's been really unclear in D.C. Again, because the mayor and our police chief and other officials have been unwilling to be very clear on what ICE police collaboration look like. And we need to see much stronger policies and much stronger statements. But certainly, if there is any, if there was any collusion between the Metropolitan Police Department and ICE that led to, to these people taken out of our communities. There needs to be consequences. What can be done to strengthen D.C.'s sanctuary status, and what will it take to make D.C. a truly sanctuary city? So what I understand of, of D.C. sanctuary city policies are that the main thing that they regulate is something called honoring detainer requests. So across the country, whenever anybody is arrested by any police force and they're fingerprinted, those fingerprints are automatically sent to the FBI. And at that point, ICE has access to them and can send a request to the local police force saying, please hold on to this person for us for up to 48 hours after they otherwise would have been released because they weren't charged or because they were bonded out. So ICE will ask for these people to be detained. Um, and many cities across the country have said no. 
one, that's unconstitutional. You can't detain people without probable cause. And, and that's opened up many jurisdictions to, to lawsuits across the country, actually. And so most of D.C. policies have to do with not honoring those detainer requests. But there's a lot of loopholes. There's certain crimes that if people have been accused of that they can still be held for ICE, for example. And we as Sanctuary DMV don't think that, that those detainer requests should be honored no matter what the, the crime is that somebody is accused of. The other really important part of um, Sanctuary City policies are notification requests. Because often when police tell ICE, no, we won't hold that person for you, ICE will come back and say, well, will you let us know when you're releasing them so that we can be right out the door to pick them up? And this is actually how a huge number of people are currently getting funneled uh, from police departments into ICE custody. And those policies are what D.C. really needs to strengthen to ensure that um, we're not just following the letter of the law, but the spirit of it and not handing people over passively or, you know, in this case, actively to, to ICE. But there's also other policies that, other, that our partners have highlighted as being really important. To, to really support our immigrant neighbors. For example, the Legal Defense Fund that currently is funded at $500,000. So there's $500,000 available for immigrant residents of the city to have legal support. But that's a, considering how expensive legal, legal representation is and how many immigrants we have across the city, it's really not enough. Sure. And we've seen other cities pass um, much larger funds. That, that's another thing that D.C. could really do to expand uh, and protect many of our, our immigrant neighbors. So those funds and other policies to protect our, our residents here in D.C. from ICE are going to be even more important in the next year to 18 months because of the huge number of temporary protected status holders that we have here in Washington, D.C. Temporary protected status is a status that was created in 1990 by an act of Congress that designate certain countries as basically unsafe for people to be returned to for, for humanitarian reasons, for natural disaster, for conflict. And then whoever from that country is present in the United States at that time is granted TPS. And so back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, Honduras and El Salvador were both granted TPS status, which protected about 250,000 people across the United States, including, I've seen estimates that up to about 40,000 just here in the, in the D.C. area. Wow. And so, but unfortunately, the, these statuses have to be extended every 18 months because they're temporary. Though administration after administration has recognized that it benefits nobody to deport these people. They're long-term residents of our communities and their countries, certainly in the cases of El Salvador and Honduras, are still very dangerous to return, to return to. Unfortunately, the Trump administration has actually terminated temporary protected status for El Salvador, Honduras, among several other countries. So we're going to see potentially tens of thousands of people here in D.C. lose their legal status just in the next, basically in the next year across the country. We're talking about business owners. We're talking about um, many people who have families. Again, across the United States, we're talking about about 300,000 U.S. citizen children of TPS holders that will be affected by this decision. Probably, again, tens of thousands of those here in the D.C. area. And so these policies, both the Legal Defense Fund and, and other policies that the city has in place to protect documented and undocumented individuals here are going to be just that much more important. As we're discussing the raids conducted by ICE a couple weeks ago, we can see it as a larger part of an attack on immigrant communities, whether that's through revoking TPS, whether that's looking at separating families at the border through a zero tolerance policy, whether that's even the Muslim ban. However, over the past month, there's been increasing momentum behind calls to abolish the ICE agency, with advocates and even certain elected officials making this demand. 
What are your thoughts on the growing energy to remove ice? I'm certainly really excited about it. I think so often the push for comprehensive immigration reform has has really missed the mark on protecting all people in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Whereas abolishing ICE, and as long as we don't replace it with another horrific agency just like it, actually could mean the end to the detention and deportation of our neighbors, our family members, our community members. And that's what I think it's really important for those people who are calling for ICE, that that's what they're calling for. Not just a replacement or a reform of the agency, but really an end to detention and deportation in the United States. And I started pushing people around this back in March. Somebody had brought it to me, actually, uh, who's, who's a colleague of mine who's, whose husband is facing um, potential deportation, came to me and said, what if we started using this abolished frame? People thought it was crazy. People told me that this would never gain traction, that we certainly would never see sitting members of Congress call for something like this, that it would never be popular. And yet, it, as you mentioned, it's been a, it's exploded in popularity. In fact, I saw a recent poll that 25% of Americans right now believe that I should be abolished, which is certainly way different than it was just a few months ago. And that the, the, the percentage of people who see in general ICE unfavorably has actually increased by 11 percentage points just since April. And I really think that this, this has to do with a lot of the attacks that we've seen on immigrants. I think the family separation at the border has really fueled this. The attempt to end DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, ending of TPS for many countries, as we, as we mentioned. But I think also it's a fundamental shift in a lot of people's minds about what immigration is for our country. And it's a shift away, at least by some people, of seeing immigrants as threats, which ICE was created with the very idea. And in that, that horrible time right after the attacks of 9-11-2001, when people were so fearful and that fear was used so effectively to really just reinvent and rewrite our immigration policies and, and the Department of Homeland Security. And this, I think, is a shift away from that, of really you know, seeing immigrants as a central part of our communities. And so part of that shift of reimagining what immigration looks like, as well as this movement to abolish ICE, it seems like a part of that fight is in the appropriations process. Can you talk about that a little? So every year, the Congress has to pass bills to fund the government for the next year. And they have to pass them by the end of September, though that's never actually happened in the seven years that I've been working on this, but that's theoretically how it's supposed to happen. Um, and so this gives Congress an opportunity year after year to decide what we're going to devote our resources to. And unfortunately, as we're seeing this growing movement to abolish ICE, this growing outrage over the abuses committed by ICE and CBP, the bills we're seeing put forward in both the House and the Senate would actually increase funding for both of these agencies. Now, the detention capability is one of the main things that's actually restraining ICE right now. They can only detain so many people per night, even though detention is getting cheaper and cheaper as they use worse and worse standards in these detention centers and use cheaper and cheaper, often county jails that are not meant to hold people for long periods of time. And so they're holding about 40,000 people per night across the country, just in immigration detention. Wow. This is not the, not counting Bureau of Prisons. This is not counting Border Patrol facilities, CBP facilities, just ICE facilities, about 40,000 people per night. But the fact that they can't go above that currently is one of the main constraints on the enforcement that they're able to do. And so we really need Congress to hold the line. The other main thing that's constraining it is the ability for ICE to, to collude with the local law enforcement, like, like we were talking about earlier. So those are the main things that I see 
that currently, until we abolish the agency, can constrain the cruelty that, that ICE is carrying out is cities and counties saying no to collaborating with them and then this appropriations process. But I'm really worried that Congress is going in the opposite direction with these bills that have gone forward. And I certainly hope that people will hold their members of Congress accountable if they vote for these bills. I think there's, there's a lot of agreement across the country that we certainly shouldn't be throwing more money at these unaccountable abusive agencies. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing and taking the time to speak with us. In parting, is there a particular song or artist that you've been listening to recently that has been a particular source of inspiration or relief in these times? There has been. I've been listening to a lot of Janelle Monet and her um, album Dirty Computer because I think that it's both, I love the music, but it's such an inspiring story of resistance to state violence, but centering love, centering this actually beautiful kind of queer polyamorous relationship at the center of it that ends up well I won't give a spoiler but it's it's beautiful and, and, and you go next gives me a lot of hope on, on this down, try my luck stand my ground die in church live in jail say her name twice in hell uncle Sam kiss the man Jim Crow Jesus rose again That was Katherine Johnson, Policy Advocacy Coordinator at American Friends Service Committee. With mounting concerns in the district over the safety of immigrant communities and the city's sanctuary status, I also met with D.C. Ward 1 Councilmember Brianne Nadeau last week. You are the Councilmember for Ward 1 where a number of these raids conducted by ICE last week happened. What is your reaction to the raids that have resulted in the arrests of residents in Mount Pleasant, Columbia Heights, as well as in Pepworth? So Ward 1 is uh, not only the most diverse ward in the district, it actually has also the largest immigrant population. And so for me, as the representative of, of this large immigrant population, it's outrageous to me that the federal government is here in our own community essentially implementing a policy that none of us agree with, that we have no voice in, no say in, because we don't have a vote in Congress, uh, 
and uh, it makes me in, in many ways feel helpless that I can't protect my residents um, from this tyranny. For someone who has lived in D.C. for well over a decade, why is it important to you that D.C. is a sanctuary city? Well, my own family fled persecution uh, and violence in Eastern Europe uh, when they came to America, and it, it has to be a place where people can find sanctuary and refuge, uh, D.C. and our whole country. But as a leader elected in the District of Columbia, I'm, I'm, I continue to reiterate that we do not cooperate on these federal, federal actions and that we are a sanctuary city. And so with that in mind, what do you believe that the city council can do and should do about ICE operations in D.C.? So the thing that has been most important for me has really been about helping keep our residents safe so that they know what to do when ICE comes. And for that reason, I've done several Know Your Rights seminars, and we have another one that we're going to do in August, um, which really teaches people what your rights are, you know, from the very basic don't open the door to um, how to find legal representation if you have a loved one who is who has been detained. And, and for my part, I actually just passed and funded legislation that creates a permanent legal services fund because we're finding that if folks really don't have access to legal services, and when you do have an attorney in detention, you, you end up a lot more likely to have all your rights upheld. There have been some reports from the raids that last week that in at least one instance, there may have been collusion between the Metropolitan Police Department and ICE. If that is the case, mm -hmm. what do you think should be done? Well, you know, I heard those reports, too, and have been really working with MPD to try to get to the bottom of them. And they're very hard to verify. Many of the times people involved um, don't now, of course, don't want to come and talk to the authorities about what their experience was and who can blame them. But MPD maintains that they did not have a presence, that they did not cooperate. And if we find out that an individual officer chose to do that on their own, then, of course, there would be repercussions for that person. And, and I would demand them for sure. There have been reports over the last several years that both the Department of Corrections and MPD accept detainer requests from ICE mm -hmm. and hold individuals um, based on requests mm -hmm. from ICE. How can the city ensure protections for the D.C. immigrant population here? So I have actually spent a lot of time looking at these concerns and talking with the Department of Corrections to make sure that it isn't the case. And it's... Um, it's a fine line they walk because, of course, if ICE asks them, do you have a person in your custody, they do have to say yes or no. But from my understanding, they generally, they, they, they do not hold people any longer than they have to. If someone is free to go, they are free to go. And if there are specific instances that people know where that's not been the case, I definitely want to know about it. So these raids happened last week, and there have been calls on the mayor to take some steps to strengthen D.C.'s commitment to being a sanctuary city. What do you believe the mayor's office can do? The mayor's office is going to join me in the Know Your Rights seminar next month, which I'm glad for. They've done some of their own as well um, in the past. But, you know, I think as leaders, we just have to constantly reiterate our positions. I mean, it's not enough to say one day we're a sanctuary city. We have to remind people that it's still true every single day. Last week, you joined nearly 200 elected officials across the country in issuing an open letter calling for the abolition of ICE. I just want to read a little bit from that letter. Yeah. 
The letter reads, The rampant and brutal enforcement tactics of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, a lawless federal agency that, since its creation in 2002, has terrorized immigrants and separated families in the communities we live in and represent. As one of our newest federal agencies, ICE spends more time destroying communities than it does keeping communities safe while violating basic civil and human rights. The experiment that is ICE has failed and must be ended as soon as possible. The letter goes on to say, Now more than ever, our country faces the greatest moral test of our time. We can choose to be complicit in this humanitarian crisis, or we can step up and end family separation and mass incarceration. Very strongly worded letter, and I think builds on a lot of the momentum we've seen over the past month itself between what we've been seeing as a country, what's happening at the border, but of course what ICE has been doing in communities for a long time now. Mm -hmm. What connections do you see between the policies of mass deportation and mass incarceration? Well, I think both involve criminalizing behavior that most of us think shouldn't be criminalized. And when you look at ICE in particular, most people don't realize that it hasn't existed that long. This is an agency that was created after 9-11. And I'm not sure what problem it's trying to solve. If you look at the violence in our communities and you look at the um, mass shootings that are happening across the country, it's not immigrants who are doing these things. These are homegrown Americans who are dealing with mental health issues, who are in the midst of conflict. And, And we also need to examine how these policies are damaging communities in a really cellular level, right? Perpetuating generations of um, broken families and violence. Neither mass incarceration nor mass deportation has moved our country forward. And I think what we need is an opportunity to help people who are in our country and who need refuge build the lives that Americans had been promised for so many generations. Is there any particular song or artist that you've been listening to that gives you hope or that sort of helps guides you? So I actually listen to a lot of Pink, and um, so she just reminds me that it's worth the fight. I know that I'm running out of time, I want it all, mm-hmm. and I'm wishing they stop trying to turn me off, I want it all, mm-hmm. and I'm walking on a wire, trying to go higher, feels like I'm surrounded by clouds. That was Brianne Nadeau, D.C. Council Member for Ward 1. While we have been focused on the recent raids in D.C., I would like to take a moment to provide an update for our listeners. A couple weeks ago here on the Shiwanana Show, we talked about the case of Maryland resident Marta Rodriguez. Marta, who had been in the U.S. for over a decade, was living in Hyattsville with her husband and five children. On July 9th, she was detained while checking in at the Baltimore ICE office. 
and after being held in various detention centers around the country, last week she was deported back to Honduras. Marta's story is a stark reminder of the cruel nature of the current system. It's also a clear reminder that what is required from elected officials is bold leadership that manifests itself through actions alongside rhetoric. On a previous episode, we also discussed the incredible and harrowing story of Prince Bahutu, who was nearly forcibly deported when ICE agents shackled him in a van and drove him to JFK Airport. Prince remains in detention in Frederick County, Maryland, being held at a local jail due to the county's detention contract with ICE. And while it may be true, as the Attorney General reminded us, that the fish rots from the head, we must recognize that the ignoble intentions of inherently violent institutions can also cause rot from within. There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate You see, war is not the answer For only love can comprehend You know we've got to find a way To bring some love and here today That's our show for today. I'd like to thank Attorney General Carl Racine, Catherine Johnson, Councilmember Brianne Nadeau, and the Raksha Raja. The music on today's episode included Gorilla Radio by Rage Against the Machine, Immigrants from the Hamilton Mixtape, Americans by Janelle Monet, Just Like Fire by Pink, and What's Going On by DC's very own Marvin Gaye. My name is Gora Madan, a.k.a. Masala Justice, and thank you for listening. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our show today. We are back live in the studio, joined by Shai Winana, friend and regular co-host, Doc Fitz. 
and we'll be passing on the show from Washington, D.C. up to Baltimore, where Doc Fitz has an update and report for us. Uh, thanks again for including me, Gaurav, again. My name is uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, and uh, I wanted to read a piece that I just published on uh, Medium uh, that you can find under my name. Uh, and uh, that piece is called Taylor Hayes and the Red Lines of Baltimore. On July 5th, seven-year-old Taylor Hayes was shot multiple times while sitting in a car in southwest Baltimore uh, on a drive home from a summer outing. Despite the best efforts of a world-renowned trauma center, she succumbed to her injuries two weeks later. While Taylor was in the hospital, another child was murdered in northeast Washington, D.C., the 10-year-old Makia Wilson. Taylor's murder, the 155th in uh, Baltimore this year, shook the city. Days after her death, dozens of activists from the Baltimore ceasefire movement went to the block where she was shot for a sacred space ritual. Our goal was to spread healing, love, and light in the space where Taylor's life was cut short. Her family and neighbors, however, had already put in their own piecework on that block. Hundreds of community members gathered with them, closing down a portion of Edmondson Avenue to celebrate life the day after her death. As we burned sage for our sacred space ceasefire ritual on Lindhurst and Edmondson, the rain gathered into a furious thunderstorm. As the sky rumbled, it occurred to me that Taylor's death was like the thunderclap, demanding the city, wake up! Unfortunately, during the same weekend, four people were murdered and 14 were shot. There was no respite in the violence despite this tragedy. Now there's enough pain and anger already in the place where someone is being killed, so we try not to bring any of that negative energy when we do a sacred space ritual. Nevertheless, as I left the ceremony, I felt myself getting angry, yelling inside, For what? Like that Ab Rock song inspired by Ceasefire that commands us, Stop dying over streets that ain't yours. Driving home on Edmondson Avenue, it seemed no accident that this city's worst tragedy would occur where it did. Taylor was the eighth person so far this year killed in the Edmondson Avenue corridor. This post-war development is a famous case study in structural violence described in the book Blockbusting in Baltimore. What began as an all-white development changed within a decade to a de facto segregated all-black community as news media drove a panic and aggressive real estate agents drove the price down to selling white families and overcharged black families looking for decent housing. The divestment in the community that followed mirrored the developments in other predominantly black areas of the city. As rec centers and libraries closed, students studied and continue to study in aging buildings with failing heat and evidence of lead in the water. And the divestment continues to this day. Current Governor Larry Hogan chose to decline federal funding for the appropriately named Red Line Subway that would have had two stops in the Allendale and Edmondson Village areas in favor of state investment in rural and suburban highway construction. When we go to the location where murders occur, the divestment is often painfully obvious as we stand in the ruins of a great American city. We do this to say the names of those who die in our city with no obituary, to say, we see you. If we don't, I fear these deaths, like 
these underappreciated histories of structural violence will remain invisible and haunt our interactions like ghosts to deadly effect. However, the ritual in Lyndhurst was different, not only because the whole city knew her name, but there were few abandoned ho uh, homes on the block, and the laughter of children was audible as whole families watched from their porches as we performed our ritual. It was a reminder that our work to end violence is not only about the finality of death, but the possibility of life and our shared future if we choose to embrace it. This is why our anger and frustration is directed uh, at those who continue to neglect, divest, and marginalize communities affected by violence, as well as it is directed at the shooters. This is why we demand that the shooters put down their weapons and choose life over death. We also ask that Baltimoreans be present and show love in affected communities, and we demand that the politicians, wealthy institutions, and individuals recognize the history of structural violence and invest in the future of Baltimore and our most traumatized communities. There are underlying historical traumas driving the violence in our city, but we are not just angry, we are hopeful and inspired. We can choose, we can choose to overcome our past. We can choose to celebrate life and create wealth in historically redlined communities in Baltimore. Nineteen sixty eight, a transformative year for the District of Columbia will be highlighted on July twenty fifth, twenty eighteen. Fifty years later, the stories of our friends and neighbors who were a part of this history will be shared and commemorated. The Humanities Council of DC will host a celebration of nineteen sixty eight on july twenty fifth at the Museum of the Organization of American States. WPFW will live broadcast the event with Captain Fly taking us back to the musical highlights that shaped this era. Humanities DC was founded in 1980 to promote cross-cultural understanding and appreciation of local history in all our neighborhoods through humanities programs and grants. Let's all come together with neighbors and friends at this tribute to DC on July 25th at the Museum of the Organization of American States, 201 18th Street Northwest from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Tickets include live entertainment, dancing, storytelling, food, drink, and a neighborhood reunion like none other. Tickets can be purchased online at www.humanitiesdc.org. Jazz and Justice has a new home. In your pocket or purse, on your smartphone or tablet. Introducing the WPFW app. How does it work? Visit the iOS or Android app store and download. That's all. How will WPFW's app help me? All access, all the time. Live stream your favorite shows, follow social media posts, and listen to all our podcast episodes wrapped together into one user-friendly feed. Hey, that's not too bad. So what's stopping you? Nothing. I'll download it right now. 
on your station for Jazz and Justice, WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. This is WPFW News. I'm Askia Muhammad. Here are some headlines. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said today the U.S. rejects Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea and called on Moscow to end its occupation of the territory, quote, in concert with allies, partners, and the international community, the United States rejects Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea and pledges to maintain this policy until Ukraine's territorial integrity is restored, Pompeo said in a statement released in advance of his appearance before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Pompeo said the U.S. calls on Russia to respect the principles to which it has long claimed to adhere and to end its occupation of Crimea, end quote. After weeks of headlines dominated by the White House actions on the international stage, Pompeo faced questions from lawmakers this afternoon about how the Trump administration is managing foreign policy. The Italian Space Agency announced today that researchers have detected signs of a large, stable body of liquid water locked beneath a mile of ice near the South Pole of Mars. The observations were recorded by the Mars Advanced Radar, MARSIS for short, Marsis was born to make this kind of discovery, and now it has, said Roberto Orose, a radio astronomer at the National Institute for Astrophysics, who led the investigation. The research team's findings, which appear in this week's issue of Science, raise questions about the planet's geology and its potential for harboring life. Marsis collected its evidence from orbit, flying aboard the European Space Agency's Mars Express spacecraft. Protesters in St. Louis gathered to shut down a convenience store Tuesday. They blocked exits after a video emerged of the store's owner and another employee attacking a woman. Around 10 a.m., Shamika Russell recorded an employee of Gas Mart confronting a woman outside the store. As the woman and the man from the store argued, another man came outside and kicked the woman to the ground. Later, the video spread across social media platforms. Protesters from the neighborhood gathered at the store, blocked access to the gas pumps, and prevented the store employees from leaving until police arrived. An employee of the store said that police took two men into custody, one of whom was the gas station's owner and a man with a history of violence has been charged in what police said appears to be an unprovoked fatal stabbing of a young woman traveling in Oakland on a Bay Area rapid transit train. A 27-year-old white man has been arrested for attacking two young African-American women on a bar train, killing 18-year-old Nia Wilson and wounding her sister Latifa. The stabbing attack sparked widespread outrage in Oakland, where hundreds of people marched through the streets to demand justice for Nia. Many Oakland residents have denounced the attack as a hate crime. The suspect has a criminal record for a series of violent offenses, but authorities say they have not yet connected the suspect, John Lee Cowell, 
with any white supremacist groups. Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp has won the Republican gubernatorial primary. Kemp, who's backed by Trump, will now face Democratic progressive Stacey Abrams, who's vying to be the first African-American governor in the Deep South since Reconstruction. Today is day five of the tropical rain train. Since last Tuesday, we've had more than 8.5 inches of rain at Reagan National Airport. Showers and storms end tonight, mostly cloudy and humid, with lows 67 to